And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. A Super Bowl edition of the VanCast Farhan Lalji in Arizona getting ready for the Chiefs and Eagles on Sunday. Harmon Dial back in Vancouver enjoying the rain. And uh, look, I, I do want to get Harmon's Super rub Bowl it picks at the, at the end of the show, but I still have to explain to him who's actually in the game before he can give me his picks. Could take a while. We might have to wait a little bit longer to, to actually get those picks. But um, nonetheless, look, the Canucks, they had their time in the sun. After the All-Star break, we dissected the trade. We had an emergency van cast. We did all of it. And um, now life be- without Bo began on Monday with a 5-4 overtime loss against a supremely talented New Jersey Devils team. The Canucks will face their former captain on Wednesday. And here we are on what was an interesting game only because this was a team that had a, had a fair bit of roster change going into it, right? And we can get into a number of those changes. Um, not to, to mention, as you know, as we did mention, not having their captain, former captain in the lineup, new players wearing letters, all of that kind of thing. And they fell behind with a series of quick goals, down 4-1, and they wind up finding a way back into this game. Phil DiGiuseppe sends it to overtime before the Canucks wind up losing in overtime. And not a team that really seems to be in a big hurry to tank anytime soon, Harm. Yeah, I mean, for these players and coaches, we all know, look, we can advocate for tanking and hoping that the team team on paper gets overmatched, but the players are still competing for their jobs, competing to be part of the solution moving forward, figuring, trying to establish themselves on the totem pole under a new head coach. And overall, flat out, when you consider the quality of opponent, I thought it was one of their best performances of the season. The Canucks were hungry. They won loose pucks. They played fast. It was extremely entertaining back and forth. And even when you go to the overtime, I don't know how, as the officiating crew, we can refuse calling the infraction against Miller in the the defensive zone that caused New Jersey to win the puck. And then just moments later, call the Canucks for that penalty in in the overtime, which led to Bratt's OT winner. But overall, I mean, look, this is the Devils team, third in the league at controlling five and five shot attempts, second in the league in controlling expected goals. They're a possession powerhouse, and the Canucks went toe-to-toe with them and didn't back down at all. Specifically, I looked at this New Jersey team, especially when you look at how they've played the Canucks in the past. This is a roster that should have killed the Canucks off the rush, murdered them absolutely obliterated them. That's the differential and 
how New Jersey is able to break the puck out, how much speed they have on their back end, up front, how connected they are and how they play. And yeah, there were a few breakdowns where the Canucks uh, allowed uh, allowed a couple goals. Hughes was able to get behind the defense on on, uh, on a couple occasions. There were definitely some odd man rushes, but the key is that the Canucks were able to counterpunch. That's something they've rarely been able to do all year because the club has typically had to rely on dump and chase to create all their offense. I mean, the Canucks' transition game offensively, that specifically was really impressive to see. You look at Kuzmenko's goal was off the rush. Lazar's goal was off a play that originated off the rush. Di Giuseppe's goal was off the rush. And the constant theme in all of these goals is that it started with a great play that originated in the defensive zone. So you look at that Kuzmenko goal. It was a great stretch pass by Luke Shen to hit him in stride. And then Kuzmenko goes absolutely bananas. What a move to undress Dougie Hamilton and snipe it uh, past Vanacek. The Lazar goal, it's Stillman driving up the ice after the Devils failed to convert on a 2-1-1. And he's doing his best impression of Quinn Hughes driving up driving up the wall uh-huh. and sending a, a chance up on a platter. Uh, Di Giuseppe, that started with a gorgeous pass by JT Miller in the defensive zone. So that, I think, shows you how for a team to create off the rush, it starts with how they're able to connect some of these longer passes. And it was it was flat out really impressive to see. Yeah, it really was. You know, they, they did play a more entertaining brand of hockey than we're necessarily used to seeing. And look, this team's had offense. But when you talk about plays off the rush as opposed to just finishing right um, and power play, like it just felt like it was, I don't want to say encouraging because it's only one game and it's going to take some time, but it, it was different, right? If nothing else, just it was a different type of hockey. It was, and to be quite honest, I think we expected some of this early on in the season, a little more of their ability to play off the rush, right? I mean, we knew that their D had some flaws in terms of its ability to transition the puck up the ice, but we also thought that they did have some speed with their wingers, probably the fastest of, of whom is now out of the lineup in Mikheyev. But, you know, what, what do you... Does it change your expectations at all for the balance of the season? It doesn't yet. I mean, it could if they're able to sustain something like this. I mean, maybe there's something. Maybe there's something in, in what talk is preaching or the execution or, or whatever it is. It is just one game. I do think it's interesting though. You mentioned the idea of maybe there was an expectation given their forward group that this should have been a team that creates a lot off the rush. I still don't think that necessarily should have been the expectation because when you look at this team's micro data and how they generated scoring chances under Travis Green and even under Bruce Boudreau, they were consistently among the league's worst rush offenses. Offenses. It's just we saw it with two different head coaches, primarily with a, with a similar group. There's only so much the forwards can do to drive the rush game themselves. That's where you really need the defense to be involved, especially because so many of the scenarios where you want to create an odd man scenario, a three on two, or you want to have a trailer sort of situation, it requires D to jump up in the rush with you. And the Canucks just don't have uh, enough of those types of uh, defensemen. When you look at Oliver Ekman Larson, for example, used to love doing that in Arizona, but there's an understanding there with his game where he doesn't, he knows he doesn't want to put himself in trouble because he doesn't have the wheels to recover if um, if they miss on converting those chances. And that's the other part of it too is 
as a team, you can tell as a coach, you can tell your team, we want to create off the rush. We want you to be aggressive. But when you're embracing that style of play, you're opening yourself up to allowing a lot coming back the other way because people talk about, okay, why is scoring up so much around the NHL? Well, one of the reasons is defensemen are allowed to rove a lot more. And so if their job responsibilities are now two way, as opposed to just holding down the defensive end and they're jumping up with the rush. Well, guess what? If you don't convert on your two on one, your players are going to be, including your defensemen are going to be caught up the ice. There's going to be a ton of open real estate and a lot of chaos for the other team to come back and score. That's what happened on the Lazarical, right? It was a two on one New Jersey chance. They like to play that way. They didn't finish. And the Canucks were able to kind of make them make them pay for it. Um, in the long run, I, I still I, I don't know if they have the personnel to necessarily execute it. Maybe you could see a marginal level of improvement. But when you look at this team's five on five results, big picture, the transition game, the rush game, both in terms of what they allow defensively and in what they generate offensively, that's by far the biggest need that they need to address moving forward. Cam Sharon wrote a, a great piece at the Athletic, Athletic on Monday. He's been hand tracking all these five on five scoring chances throughout the entire season and, and how they've been created and specifically designating them in terms of how, how those chances were created. Now the Canucks have actually been close to their opponents. There hasn't been a, they haven't been beaten by huge margins in terms of four check and cycle chances. It's the rush where it's been like a two to one ratio. Um, so we'll see if talk, can, can make an impact. I tend to be skeptical that they can keep this up, but it's definitely an encouraging sign. Yeah, no doubt. And and it, you just get the sense that this has kind of been coached in terms of newness of system play as opposed to just kind of reacting. And that said, I know that it seems counterintuitive given they only had one practice before getting on the ice with this group. But, uh, you know, whether or not they were able to get film cut-ups and other things to them and find ways to do things virtually during the break, I don't even know if they're allowed to do that. But it, it does seem like a group that is attempting to play differently. Now, with all of that, there's some different players in the lineup. So we saw Anthony Beauvillier make his Canuck debut. Vasily Podkolzin got recalled. Phil DiGiuseppe also in the lineup. So let's start with the, the newcomer and the guy that we haven't seen before, and that is Anthony Beauvillier. And just he got some time playing on the, on the top line with Pedersen and Kuzmenko. He also got some time on Vancouver's first power play unit. What did you make of his efforts? Yeah, I mean, right off the bat, it's a positive that – the top line, which Bavillier was on, was by far the Canucks' most dangerous. They seemed to threaten to score, it seemed, on every other shift. So right off the bat, I mean, you could tell that Kuzmenko and Pedersen were responsible for the heavy lifting, but you look at the situation that Bovillier is in coming into a new team, his first task isn't to necessarily take over and be a dynamic stud, especially when he's playing with arguably the two, the team's two most dynamic forwards. His initial job is going to be getting accustomed to how they play. And his first sort of thought is going to probably be, I just got to make sure I don't F up, right? Like don't flub grade A scoring <laughs> chances. No, I'm serious. Like don't, don't screw up your scoring chances, connect your passes. Don't make major defensive mistakes that kill possession or cause you to be stuck in your own end. Uh, and then as you become more familiar with their, with their game, more comfortable with the, with the new system, the new coaches, then you go, okay, how can I assert myself? How can I, then you feel more confident and you start thinking about, okay, what can I add to this line to elevate it? In terms of what I saw, 
I think early on, he understandably looked a little bit nervous. There were a couple of instances where there were passes made to him off an entry or in the neutral zone where he um, he wasn't able to really corral the puck and it allowed the Devils to regain possession. But overall, I thought after the first period or so that he really started to settle in and he, he was making simple, smart plays. For instance, on the two-on-one rush he had with Pedersen, I love the saucer pass that he made. And normally for him to, Bavelli getting it over the defender's stick, Pedersen's usually a guy that has that elite hand-eye coordination to where normally I'd bank on him converting on that chance. And if he had gotten any part of a stick on it, that probably would have been in the back of the net. So overall, I I liked Bavillier's game. And most importantly, it, it was just that he didn't have any major screw-ups that, that detrimentally impacted the chemistry of Kuzmenko uh, and, and Pedersen. Yeah, you know, when I looked at it, you know, from the brief bits of it I saw, um, I thought he showed pretty good speed. I thought yeah. his uh, I thought his play along the wall was pretty good and you know you might not know system play but there are certain just fundamentals that you can show you can bring to the team and I thought in those particular areas he was good. Hard to really gauge any level of chemistry that he had but it didn't seem like he was necessarily shying away from wanting to engage, create, and be a part of what was going on in terms of how they play as opposed to, you know, like you're right, there was an element of don't F up, but I, I think there was a little bit more than that. I, I don't think he was sure. necessarily afraid to try to engage. Yeah, no, I, I like that. Uh, my point was just to sort of think about almost any 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 new player in that sort of role playing in in a plum offensive situation, what... Um, what you're looking to do, I thought he, I thought he filled his role as a, as a complimentary piece on that line, uh, really well. And the other aspect that I'm curious to see how it may translate is, Bovillier is obviously coming from an environment in uh, in Long Island where it's, it's been different under Lane Lambert, but under Barry Trotz, they played such a detail oriented, defensively savvy style. So he's probably going to have pretty strong defensive habits he's going to be used to a coach and a system that prioritizes being really tight buttoned with your puck management with not blowing the zone with your wall work all of these little habits that this roster has otherwise been pretty loosey-goosey with so i wonder if that'll help his transition and learning curve is you're coming into an environment where Rick Talkett is going to be trying to instill a lot of these mindset and philosophies that's probably already programmed into Bavillier just based off of how he played under trots with the Islanders. Uh, let's talk a bit about Vasily Podkolzin and, um, you know, got an opportunity to come back up. We kind of saw it on the roster before they went to the break. So we, we're not necessarily surprised that uh, that he did get a chance coming out of the break. Also, Nils Oman got some time in this game. But let's start with Pod Colson. Um, 15-31 in this game. Uh, you know, the, the the raw numbers are simple enough, right? In terms of his shot attempts, I think he had three shots and uh, four hits in the game. He was he was you could tell he was trying to make an impression. Somebody got to him and said, "Look, this is the type of game Rick Talkett likes." Um, what did you make of his return to the NHL? Yeah, I like the assertiveness on a couple of occasions driving to the net. Like you said. There was a desire for him to make an impact on the outcome of, of the game, which for Pod Colson is important, right? You don't just want him to sort of nestle in and for for his entire career just be a bottom six, uh bottom six run of the mill grinder. You want him to be a player that 
he doesn't necessarily have to take over a game, but can drive play on shifts here or there. And that's what we saw in flashes, which is what you want to see out of a top 10 pick. I liked the fact that he embraced using his size, protecting the puck, taking it to the net. He was engaged physically. I liked his impact on the four check. There were a couple of moments where I thought he was a bit shaky in the defensive zone, a couple of breakouts, which he seemed to botch, right? There was one that that came to mind where Hughes uh, made a pass from the defensive zone and Pod Coles and accidentally kicked it back to the, into the D zone with a skate, which led to a chance against, I think there was another play along the wall where he was a little bit slow to move it. And the devil, Devils were able to strip him of the puck and continue the uh, continue their zone time. But there's nothing glaring that led to a, a goal against sort of thing. And and those mistakes are going to happen as part of the growing process. It's These are the games where you want him to play a lot of minutes to learn. And it's it should be totally fine for him to make mistakes. Look, this team isn't going anywhere this season, right? Like this is the time for him to get, get the mistakes out of his system, really go in with a mindset on every night where you don't want him to be afraid of making a mistake. You don't want him to be afraid of trying something with the fear that he's going to be stapled to the bench. You want him to experiment a little bit and understand that if you do screw up on occasion because you're trying to make a positive impact, that's okay. This is when you learn. He still doesn't have a ton of NHL experience under his belt. So um, overall, I, I liked more the mindset that he that he really seemed insistent on trying to make a difference. And it is going to be interesting, right? With Dakota Joshua has gotten this opportunity as the sort of big bodied forechecking presence alongside Miller and Garland. seems like Joshua is a player that Tockett wants to really give an audition in, uh, in terms of a bigger role. I'd like to see if Joshua doesn't excel there. I'd like to see Pod Colson get a shot there in in that sort of uh, role, because with Dries and Besser, that line was actually pretty good last night, but overall big picture, it's a bit of an odd fit stylistically with there not being a natural playmaker on that line. And when I think about Pod Colson looked really confident right at the outset of this season, you look at the environment in which that happened. He started the year with Bo Horvat on that wing. And in the season opener against Edmonton, it was like he had four or five scoring chances that he set up for Horvat in the slot. And he was just, Pod Colson was unlucky that those didn't go in and eventually, after two or three games, because the production didn't come, he was starting to get demoted. And so for me, I'd, I'd like to see if other guys don't run with opportunities to see pot goals and get a chance with more offensive talent to, to see what he can do. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll get into some of the other players that got back into the lineup, uh, Nils Oman, uh, and also Thatcher Demko making an appearance in practice. Uh, we'll get into that. More trade speculation around him. Lots going on around this Vancouver Canuck team, including who might the president be? Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7, U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. 
You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. So, Arm, we've talked about a couple of the players that did get a chance to make an impression on their new head coach, but... As much as anything, this game is going to be known for the first game without Bo Horvat as a Vancouver Canuck. No one wore the C. Uh, they've got Hughes and Pedersen wearing A's. Now, I don't think Hughes wore one last night. I think Pedersen did. Yeah. And, it, you know, it doesn't seem like they're in any kind of a hurry to name a captain, which I think is wise. Um, but let's talk a little bit about what this team looks like on the ice without Bo Horvat. We can get into the captaincy and the leadership and some of the comments that were made by the players around that topic. But as far as just what it looked like and just how it played out five on five in terms of matchups and things like that, what what was your takeaway? Yeah, I mean, there are a couple of huge areas where I, I'm interested to see the trickle-down effect and how it plays out over the re- remainder of the season. At five on five, with the minutes and matchups burden that Horvat was accustomed has has been accustomed to playing and, and absorbing for years, I I was really interested interested to see how that would be distributed. Now, it's a little bit different, of course, because the Canucks are on the road and they don't have last change, so they don't they don't really get a, a much of a, a chance to dictate matchups as much as they would if they were at home. But it, it was interesting to see without Horvat. I'm curious to see if you can if you can get this far on which Canucks forward spent the most minutes against Jack Hughes head to head last night. I'll give you three guesses. Well, it should have been Elias Pettersson, but you're going to wind up telling me that it was Nil Zoman. No, it couldn't have been because he didn't even play ten minutes last night. Um, it couldn't have been JT Miller. So who was it? Sheldon Rise. <laughs> <laughs> like that isn't that isn't that crazy? Yeah, I guess so. Like that right there, and so of course that's not necessarily going to be a conscious, deliberate decision, right? Like Rick Tockett wasn't in. No, but they're uh, on the road. It's not his league. decision, exactly. Exactly, and like, it, it, so it's not a conscious, deliberate decision. But the point is that with Horvat gone, and he was really the matchup horse for Green, not so much under Boudreaux because he. He was more of a soft matchups guy, but Talkit really is more of a of a hard matchups guy. So you look at Horvat's gone, and Talkit's already said that he prefers trying to when he was introduced when Bruce was let go. Talkit said that he prefers trying to get Patterson out against the opposition's weakest players. Like that leads one to believe, like, look, JT Miller can't be on the ice for thirty minutes a night, so that means the bottom six is going to have to be ready to absorb some of the tougher minutes that uh, that Horvat's going to uh, leave behind, at least in terms of uh, the matchups. And it was uh, it was a little bit telling anyway. Now, of course, the minutes against Hughes, and if Hughes, for example, were still relatively evenly uh, distributed. But the point being is the bottom six, especially if you're counting on Pedersen to sort of feast on um on third lines and in easier matchups and a lot of offensive zone starts and you don't have Bo, then that means the bottom six is gonna have to step up there for matchups for the remainder of the season. And that really does also highlight bigger picture the need for another sort of high end centerman. Because even if Miller sticks at center and you rely on him as your second line center, you got Pedersen as your one C then that still means you need 
a two-way third line centerman who can who, who can handle some of those minutes and and of course maybe down the line you're hoping that a player like Aturatu can uh, can blossom into that type of role. Yeah, no doubt. And I mean, look, it, it's going to be a challenge for the rest of the season. I, like, I hope that this team doesn't make the mistake to go out and spend money on a center that uh, has term attached, right? And and I know yeah. that there's a desire from this organization to find that, you know, mid-25 something player. But if all of a sudden you're going to bring back a $5 million center, like how much farther along have you got here? Now, if you want to have a guy that can get you through the balance of the year, so you're not having guys completely play out of their depth in certain areas, you know, I get it. But if that player's got term attached, wow, right? So, and when you look up and down this organization, the pickings are going to be really slim, like really slim. And, you know, they've they've got Nils Oman here. You've, you've got Sheldon Dries here. There's not a lot of other options there, right? Unless you want to roll Curtis Lazar back at center. There's just, you know, and I guess Jack Stanika could play there, but he hasn't looked good there. So is the organization in a position where they have to go out and do something short term just to get through the year, whether it's the waiver wire, whether it's the trade deadline? What like what do you do at this point? No, I don't think so. I mean, Dries is obviously not a third line center on a good team, but he's been fine there. I, I don't see, for example, we mentioned the type of workload that he had last night. His line was pretty good. They uh, had a greater share of possession of shots and of scoring chances than uh, than what the Devils generated when they were on the ice. And Dries has chipped in with just enough offense to where it's not a glaring issue. And he hasn't been a major, major defensive liability. So, I mean, in a year where you're probably just hoping you tank for the rest of the season, I have no problems with just rolling him in that sort of spot. And, I mean, look, a- anything you're looking to accomplish that anything that can augment the roster for this season and potentially ruin a tank, I'm probably going to be very much against. against. Yeah. You know what? And you're right. And it makes sense. And, you know, management has said that we expect the team to play a certain way, but we can manage a certain way. And by putting Sheldon Dries out there as your third line center, you were managing that way because to the point last night, what did they do? Right. They tried to get the Hughes matchup out against the Sheldon Dries line. And that's probably going to continue to happen while they're on the road. Um, was it weird watching that game without Horvat in the lineup? And I mean, look, he's had some injuries here and there. I mean, generally, he's been a pretty reliable player. He's generally in the lineup. But I mean, did it feel different than just say, oh, he's out with an injury tonight? It's a really good question. I think it's tougher to say just because I wasn't there, right? And that's often something that on a game day skate, walking into the locker room, really being in the building for that sort of environment. It's like, that's a feeling an atmosphere that you can't really get from watching just from your television or laptop. So I think I'm going to have a better sense of that when the team comes back home, to be totally honest with you. I will say it was strange to see the power play just because that's an area where I think his absence is going to have biggest impact in terms of now all of a sudden you've got to rethink the strategy, the structure, the plays that you're looking to make because handedness is so important in terms of on a power play where it affects your the one-timers you have, right? Like if you automatically just throw in a right shot in the bumper because you, let's say, presume that you don't have a lot of great left-handed options, right? You think you want to put a player like Besser in that spot. The problem is Miller Miller all of a sudden, when he has the puck on the left flank, he doesn't have a one-timer option to pass to in Besser. 
right? And yeah, because it's a tougher release to to get it to to Bester and have him shoot. There's a knock on effect there where it's like, as a penalty killing unit, I'm then not as worried about Besser and as tight on the bumper. And that means I can apply more pressure on Miller. Well, that takes away another threat, which was Miller's shot, right? Because a lot of times when penalty killers would cheat to the middle to really like choke that lane off to 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 Horvat, the passing lane, Miller would be like, okay, I, I can walk straight down Main Street, right down Broadway and snipe myself. So it's like, there's a lot of, you're losing the gravity of, of Horvat even, where even a lot of Kuzmenko's goal, goals you'll watch where Miller would make that pass to hit him on the back door. If you watch closely on the tape, the defenders were extremely preoccupied with Horvat because they would have watched the tape in their pre-scout meetings and seen that, oh my God, this guy's a goal-scoring machine. They always try and feed Horvat in the bumper for the one-timer. So when you lose him, now all of a sudden it, it could be more difficult for the net front player to find those tap-ins. So I think last night it was interesting to sort of see the setup with uh, with Miller net front, Kuzmenko on the left flank, Bovillier in the bumper. It's interesting. I'm 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 not quite sure how I feel about that yet. They only got the one power play, so we didn't really get to see a long look at it. And I expect it's going to take some time to for players to become familiar and instinctual with uh, with a lot of those um, reads. But I was kind of wondering if you're going to keep a left shot in the bumper in Bovillier. I would have thought the more simple thing would have been, why not just keep Miller in the flank, Kuzmenko at the net front, and just try and see if you can replicate um, more or less the type of strategy that you uh, had when Horvat was still there. What about Connor Garland as a right shot playing in the bumper spot and doing some of those things? Now, look, physically, he's a much different player than Bo Horvat, but he certainly had some success under Rick Tockett. And, you know... They've all been trying to get him more run. If you put him in that spot, you can set up the same way theoretically. On top of that, it, you might be able to rebuild his value to a point if, in fact, you do want to move him. The problem is, I don't really think that Garland's good enough to be a power play one guy, to be totally honest. Maybe he can fit Compared there in the Compared to bumper. the rest of this roster? Come on, man. Well, they don't even have best on the first unit right now. So it's like yeah, if you know. want someone, if you want a right shot guy... Like they need to rebuild both of their values. And if you're looking at who might juice their point totals more in that sort of opportunity that you give them, I'd bank on Besser being that um being that guy. And and so I mean there are a couple of options that, you know, I mean there's so there are actually endless options you can think of, but the couple that sort of came to mind for me, because I, you know, I don't mind this initial look. Right, like I think option one is you you, you look at Bovillier in the bumper as a left shot. Do whatever you want on the flanks with Miller and Kuzmenko, and sort of see if you can rehabilitate Bovillier's value there. In terms of other options, I also wouldn't mind if you had Besser on his one timer side, Pedersen on, on his regular one timer side, Miller in the bumper, and then Kuzmenko in the net front. So that way you have Besser in a shooting spot. And he's been effective there in the past, despite not having a great one-timer. He can be productive there. And I have a lot more confidence in him as a scorer and producing than I would, say, a Connor Garland. And in this sort of setup, you'd have Miller as a trigger man rather than a playmaker. And Pedersen, all of a sudden, now is a player that you lean on more for the power play to, to sort of run through. The other option I was thinking of is, if you want to give 
Elias Patterson maximum options and have everything run through him. I almost wonder about if you have either, let's say, Besser and Kuzmenko as two right shots, interchangeable between net front and bumper, right? So those guys can rotate it in and out depending on uh, on how they're feeling. So the the point just being, if a right shot on the bumper, Pedersen on his normal one timer side, and maybe you leave Miller on the on the left flank. The difference is power play instead of running through Miller runs through Pedersen, which now all of a sudden, if you have him on his one timer side, giving Pedersen a right shot on the bumper means that Pedersen when he gets the puck has an almost unlimited amount of options and is really hard to defend, right? Because if Hughes has the puck up top and he sends it to Pedersen on the right flank, now all of a sudden, Pedersen has the one-timer option. He could pass to Kuzmenko or Besser for the one-timer in uh, in the slot and basically do what Miller's been doing is in terms of setting all those one-timer chances up. But then Pedersen can also fake the one-timer and pass back door with a slap pass that we've seen to the net front guy for a tap-in. We've seen him try that uh, before. So, I mean, that would be an option if you want to run everything through Pedersen. But yeah, I mean, there's so many different options and so many different possibilities. And it's just, it can, it gets complicated. It can get complicated real fast when you try and think about handedness and in what type of plays you want to run. Um, but it was interesting that um, for me anyway, that Bovillier got the bumper spot and yet they still decided to flip Miller and Kuzmenko um, to have Kuzmenko on the flank and Miller at the net front. As far as Miller's concerned, what did you make of his play at center? Now, look, since Rick Tockett's been there, we've seen more of him back at center. But, um, you know, albeit elevated in the lineup a little bit more, right, in terms of a clear top six center in terms of deployment, what'd you think? Like, I, I got to be honest, again, from the bits and pieces I saw, it looked better than I've seen him in some time. For sure. I thought he looked uh, pretty comfortable there. Now, to be totally honest, it, it you know, I, I don't think that line was necessarily dominating or anything, but I also think this was an environment where Joshua, he's not a top six player. Garland has been fighting it a little bit this season. And so without, without having elite help around him, I thought Miller was pretty comfortable. There were no egregious turnovers. I thought his defensive game was um, it was pretty responsible. There were a couple moments where I would have wanted him to get the puck out in, in, in an instance where he wasn't able to. But overall, I thought he was pretty responsible. I, I love the play that he made in terms of the stretch pass on Di Giuseppe's tying goal that forced things uh, to overtime. I thought he's been I thought he's been pretty reliable, pretty decent at um, at center the last uh, couple games here. And before we take our next break, I want to ask you about the goaltending decision as opposed to the goaltending itself coming out of the break. I guess I kind of thought Spencer Martin was the starter, but maybe he's not. Colin Delia gets the first start. Yeah. with Not that it matters at this stage. Yeah. I mean, Delia's just been slightly better than Martin. I mean, both of them have been, frankly, not really NHL. Uh, I mean, they've been barely NHL caliber, right? The Canucks' mm-hmm. save percentage has been dreadful, which of course, I mean, part of it is you have to account for how bad their defense is and um, safe percentage can't account for shot quality. But I mean, even we saw against Devils last night, I mean, Canucks allowed some chances, but they weren't horrific defensively and to still have five scored on you. I think it's just a case where Dealey has been the lesser of the two evils and it's kind of like a pick <laughs> your poison thing. <laughs> 
Yeah, that's probably the best way to describe it. Hey, uh, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, I want to get into Horvat's contract a little bit. And then also a lot of the rumors and noise surrounding this team that is going all the way up the ladder when the Van Kest returns. And now two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. So, Harm, Lou Lamorello said it was too long and it was too much. Uh, eight years, $8.5 million. You had to have a sense that he knew what it was going to take to get this contract signed before he traded for Horvat. Nonetheless, he pulled the trigger anyway, and he can lament it half jokingly, half not. Um, you know, I, I don't think that there is anybody in Vancouver uh, that thinks that the Canucks would be better off if Bo Horvat was being paid eight times 8.5. And look, you know how I feel about the guy and, you know, culturally what he means and all of that stuff. But based on the fact that this was one year of his ability to play at this level offensively, um, that's a lot of money to be paying. Oh my goodness, an eight and a half million dollar cap it for a player whose cr- previous career high is 61 points. Yeah. I mean, good for Bo for, for cashing in, but that contract is going, going to, after the first few years, if even it's decent value for that long, it's going to age uh, very concerningly right through his age 35 season. Immediately for next season, he's projected to be, I think, tied for the 40th highest paid cap it. In um in the league, which includes goaltenders, defensemen, like every position, all all sorts of uh of players, not just forwards or or centermen. The the question that I kind of had was, okay, he gets his bag, right? Like that's a massive, massive payday. But part of me also wondered, if you're Horvat, like why would you want to sign on a team whose contention window is rapidly closing and who may not even make the playoffs this year? Sorry, right? there's like a contention the, window there? Like, wow, contention for making the playoffs, maybe. Exactly. Like, like they're not my thought threat. process is, is like, great. Like, you've, like, he maximizes dollars, right? Especially because the Islanders could have offered him the eighth year, which no other team could have in, in unrestricted free agency. So there's, you know, at least 
an eight and a half million dollar difference there in terms of the extra year. And maybe teams wouldn't have been willing to go right up to the eight and a half million dollar mark. But going to the Islanders, man, like that's an old team that is strapped for cap space. Their core is aging. They've got even in goaltending with Ilya Sorokin, he only makes $4 million. He's going to be a pending UFA in a couple of years. And with the way that he's been dragging that team as essentially their MVP, he's going to get a massive contract himself. The Islanders are doomed. They have a horrific prospect pool. They just traded their first round pick away to the Canucks. And I'm thinking from Bo's perspective, he's been on this Canucks team. He's been through this painful rebuild process or, or not even a rebuild process, just this losing environment in Vancouver for all these years since Mike Gillis departed through all these dark years, he might get one, maybe maybe two years of contending for the playoffs. And then he's going to spend the rest of his career being on on a loser for a team again. Maybe. I mean, I, I do have a little more faith in Lou Lamorello than that in terms of his ability to um, to get himself out of a bit of a mess from time to time here. And, and certainly you think so? Uh, I don't. Well, like I, like I look at it I, I now, and, you his know, accomplishments, this is, but it's like they're, they're screwed. When you look at the Canucks, this is probably the reason why they didn't let the agent talk to teams, right? Because if you are the agent, you're talking to teams and look, I think we, we do understand back door that at some point this kind of got to that where they just said, okay, yeah, this is what it's going to take. And they had an understanding of, of what it was going to cost to get it done. But overall, they couldn't steer the process and pick their teams, right? And the other thing that Lou has done with this contract is because it hasn't been so bonus front loaded, it's not buyout proof, right? Like there is a path to to moving on from this contract midway through it that isn't going to kill you the well, way an, an Oliver ever, Larson's contract will with Vancouver. If you're ever talking about a buyout before the contract even kicks in, and like even having Heck, to the talk Canucks about were talking about a trade before his no trade clause kicked in with JT Miller, and maybe they weren't. But yeah, well, that, the I rest mean, of the, the, the common theme is that's a sign that you've got a t- like you're look you, that you've got a contract that at one point or another is going to age terribly. I know, but from like from an agent perspective and from a player perspective, you have this contract to make your bag, and you make your bag. Yeah, I mean, hundred percent. Again, like I said. I don't think there's another team that he could have gotten gone to and sort of maximize that amount of money. I was just wondering more from the perspective of would you rather be, you know, okay, scenario A, let's say your career earnings are a hundred million dollars and you never compete for a Stanley Cup in your career in all in, in all likelihood. Like those are the probabilities. Um, you never really get to play meaningful hockey. I guess the upside is there is you, you get a lot of April, May, May's and June's off. Yeah. Um or scenario B, let's say you make ninety million, and then in the in the latter half of your career, you might maybe you go to a team that actually has a chance of being able to win something. Well, and he might, right? Like I said, if he gets bought out, he could pick. He can pick and choose, right? He can I still guess. wind up. He can still wind up doing that. And look, none of it's i none of it's ideal, but like you know, from an agent's perspective, you are going to maximize the dollar. You're not going to take less to go to a better team at that stage because it's his last chance to make that much. Right? Well, it and depends they, on what what the client's priorities are, right? Like what he yeah, you're, really you're wants. Not, you're not wrong, but in the industry, tell me when you see guys take that level of hometown discount at this stage of your career. Not hometown, but winning discount, championship discount at this point in your career. But don't you think there would have been at least one team in free agency that like even even offers you, let's say, eight, uh, eight, eight times seven? And is the difference there 
like but then you would have signed with the canucks why would that be with the canucks well the canucks are gonna give him eight years and seven million no no no, i mean eight million times seven years oh sorry if you hit the open market um yeah fair question fair yeah that's still a lot of money like that's still a boatload of money I mean, and to be very clear, I'm not like criticizing Bo's decision, like whatever makes him happy. And, you know, like this contract, the contract itself is absolutely a win for his side. I was just more curious and and um, and sort of thinking out loud about the different possibilities and um, and how quickly he chose to go down this direction. But I think it's also an understanding of maybe maybe he thinks that, you know, like, who knows if I can keep this up in the second half and. Um, maybe, maybe I go cold, maybe I don't, you know, adjust well to this sort of environment. And, um, and in that case, uh, money comes first. Meanwhile, uh, the management team that did not wind up making this move, and that is here at the Vancouver Canucks and Jim Rutherford, there's been a lot of noise over the weekend. Uh, Steve Simmons reported it in his Sunday column that just, and again, it wasn't reported as fact. It was reported as you know, rumor mill, just that he has been hearing a lot of talk uh, in and around All-Star Weekend that Jim Rutherford may want out. And um, I've certainly heard similar things, uh, but not enough to, to report on it as, as fact. It's just kind of been talk. Um, and, uh, you know, I do know that he did make a, I think he left on Sunday to travel somewhere to the U.S. I, you know, I'm not sure. Obviously, if it was with the Canucks, he would have, he would have gone at that time with the team. But, um Curious to see if there's any smoke there, right? He's always given the indication that, uh, you know, because I've asked him directly, right? Like in front of the cameras, are you long for this? You're in your early 70s. And he said, as long as my health holds up, I'm not going anywhere. And, and I think Elliot Friedman today kind of put some water on on the speculation around that. But what's your take on where this is coming from and just whether or not there's any seriousness to it? Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, right off the bat, the way I'd look at it is, I don't know, and correct me if I'm wrong, this is just me sort of thinking things through logically, not necessarily what I'm hearing, but if we're in gym shoes, wouldn't you want at least one more offseason to try and really rectify this and put your stamp on the team? Like, you've now had an opportunity to bring your coach in. You might think, okay, I can carve out some cap space in the summer. I just traded a bow we're starting to actually like put like our stamp on this team as opposed to last off season where, yeah, okay. You set your direction and you were able to resign certain guys, but you still had a coach that you didn't really like, and you weren't able to move out contracts and start doing a lot of the reconstruction that you um, really had in mind. Like, wouldn't you want one more summer to try and set your vision and see how it, plays out in motion before you're ready to move on like doesn't it seem a little bit too early to just throw in the towel yeah potentially but i also know that and there I'm, is a I'm level not saying of frustration he's in for a long t- yeah no uh sorry i just wanted to add but before uh before you get uh before you make your point like i'm not s- suggesting that he's gonna be here forever i'm just saying like wouldn't you want the one more at least one more offseason I guess so. I, I think you would, but you also believe you would have been farther ahead this offseason, right? I think there was some real disappointment internally that they weren't able to execute 
either one of their goals, like even move closer in any way, shape or form, right? Like they didn't move closer on the move money aspect of it. And they didn't move closer on the rebuild your blue line aspect of it. Okay. They signed, they got Ethan Bear in a trade, right? Like that's the extent of it. And you would have to classify that as a nibbling around the edges type of move. Yeah. So they, they haven't done anything. They had two goals and they haven't done anything. They haven't cleared out cap space. They've spent money, right? They've spent money on JT Miller. They spent money on Andre Kuzmenko. They spent money on Bo Horvat. They spent money on um, uh, Mikheyev, right? Like, so money's not moving. It's just being spent. And, uh, and then they won't, they put, they were in a position based on the actions of the previous management team and their own where they had to move on from Bo Horvat. So you could classify that as a move money move, but it, really wasn't right it was just we just don't have the money to spend because we've been spending so you'd have to classify this portion like where they've been at through one year as a level of failure would you not like is that is that unfair given their stated goals they knew what the priorities were two big ones oh for two and they don't all happen overnight but you need to at least have made one significant move in each of those areas. One contract out, one defenseman out or in, right? Like there, there had to have been something done on either one of those and that hasn't happened. So was it easier in his previous incarnations when he uh, retooled teams and got them to where they needed to? Sure. Was the level of scrutiny there? Like I do believe he is feeling the pressure of this market, right? There, like I, I don't know how you can get around that, right? With all the medical stuff, with the Boudreaux stuff, you know, I'm sure there's a level of ownership angst that's kicking in faster than maybe he expected. When you add it all up, like there is simply no way he is not feeling the pressure of this market. So I'm not verifying that he wants to leave. I'm not telling you that. I've heard the same things. Again, not fact, just just talk. But um, I, I, I don't know. I Like this is a tough task. This is a tall order. Have they made it taller? I don't know. But if you, you know, this is going to take some real time. And if you're, if you're Jim Rutherford, if there be, if there comes a point of acceptance that we can't do this in two years, then you've got to really think about, can I be here long enough to actually do this? Definitely. And the one thing that scares me in all of this is that, and I know it's in more of like a consulting position, not really a a big part of the front office, but it does scare me that Dale Talon is still in the organization because me too. If you have a scenario where, I mean, whenever it happens at Rutherford, let's say hypothetically, there's a scenario where he does leave. It scares me that Dale Talon, it could try and wiggle his way into some sort of influential front office position under the guise of, hey, I can be the experienced veteran hockey operations leader now that you've potentially seen one walk out the door. That's that scares the crap out of me. That would be the the worst case scenario. We're talking about all that this franchise has been through. That would be rock bottom. Yeah, no, you're you're right. And you know, as as uh, one of our colleagues said to me, kind of in an amusing way, well, he might just tear the whole thing down just to buy himself some time, which might not be a horrible thing. But uh, yeah, you're right. I, like, I think that makes a lot of people nervous because is Patrick Alvin ready for this, right? It, it has a lot of Trevor Linden, Jim Benning vibes where you had a president 
Um, he couldn't continue to function in the existing structure. And you had a general manager that came in and wound up getting a job he clearly wasn't ready for without a level of oversight. And then that oversight leaves. And, you know, certainly, we, you know, we know that Jim kind of sold a different vision to ownership and that led to them kind of letting him do his thing and moving on from Trevor. And that's not necessarily the way it might happen here. But again, you could be left with a general manager that isn't necessarily equipped to run the whole thing without a level of oversight in the form of a president. So for sure, because it, this it, is like, you're right. Like this is a young, like pretty relatively inexperienced front office. And that's where the value in Rutherford sort of lies is because wh whether you look at the GM position, the AGM position, uh, Todd Harvey, who's leading the amateur scouting depart department, you have a lot of people in powerful, influential roles who are relatively new to the job. No, on another topic, and again, we, like just to be clear, we're just opining on the reports that have been out there. We're not trying to suggest that that Jim Rutherford's on his way out, uh, but it is a story that's going to be worth monitoring in the weeks and months ahead here. I mean, I certainly don't expect anything to happen before the end of the regular season, but we'll be curious to see what happens when we get to um, the middle of April and, and there's no more meaningful hockey. I mean, not that there's meaningful hockey now, but there's no more hockey period at that point. Uh, to see um, what the fallout is from what has been another really challenging season in Vancouver. And will that fallout include goaltender Thatcher Demko? Now, we've talked about it previously, and, and I've certainly, you know, had my say on it. Um, Thatcher Demko back on the ice, uh, in full uniform, in full pads, practicing with the team. Uh, what do we make of a timeline for him? I've heard a week and a half to two weeks as a suggestion as to when he might get back into the lineup. You know, it's pretty clear the club has been cautious. What we thought was a six-week injury is going to wind up being in the three-month range before it's done. And if you are a part of Tank Nation, that's probably a good thing uh, because the last thing you want is him to just find his game immediately. But the trade speculation only continues to heighten. Emily Kaplan on ESPN coming out of the All-Star break said that at least four teams have inquired and those four teams have not been told no. So there is still continued dialogue on the possibility of a Thatcher-Demko trade. And some have suggested, great, sell high. Uh, I, to me, it's made no sense to me at all why this conversation is even happening, uh, given the fact this club has got some goals. We've talked about it before. You want to rebuild? Trade Thatcher-Demko. You want to retool? And you got a goaltender of that quality with cost certainty? What are you thinking? Right? Unless you've got some... Uh, some thoughts that, um, you know, I, I've opined before about whether or not he's happy, but there's also some thought that, you know, if you've got some internal concerns about where he's at injury-wise and his long-term health and sustainability, then maybe that's something you're thinking about. I don't know. Certainly, he is as big an asset as this team has had, including Bo Horvat, just because of the, the dollar amount and the term attached to it. That is a very, very favorable contract that should be absolutely a breeze to move. It's going to be interesting to see if the club is seriously entertaining the idea of moving Demko. Then his return to play all of a sudden, the timing of it before the deadline and how he plays in the immediate aftermath, then that's really high leverage all of a sudden because... Yeah. Oh, yeah. Then, like, if you want to move him before the deadline, if, I, if I'm a contender, if I'm a team like uh, LA where I've got Phoenix Copley, a, a journeyman starter who's spent quite a bit of time in the minors previously, 
if I'm leaning on him as my number one and Jonathan Quick looks absolutely done, Cal Peterson is buried in the minors. Demko on paper would be a great fit, but I'm not confident in giving up a lot of assets. I'm not going to do it until I see Demko has returned to play. He looks like himself again. Otherwise, I'm going to be thinking, boy, if I have to give up, give up all those assets, I'll probably look for a, a stopgap stop stop gap option and instead of and, and then maybe explore the possibility in the offseason when I've had a chance to see how Demko can perform through the remainder of the season in a larger sample size. Same goes for a team like Buffalo. Other other clubs that would be uh, potentially interested. So all of a sudden, it magnifies the potential impact of his return to play and, and, and his immediate performance ahead of the trade deadline. Yeah, I mean, if there's no concern and you still view him as your goaltender of the future, I'd play him as little as possible. Right, like I would wait, 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 because you want to lessen your draft or you want to better your draft position, right, by lessening your point total. And he's certainly not going to make your goaltending worse because it's barely average right now. You know, and Demko wasn't great at the start of the season. We know that. Like for all the structural problems this team has had, he wasn't playing well. Uh, there are many who believe that even though he wasn't necessarily injured from his summer procedure, that he may have been compensating. And that led to some performance issues and also ultimately led to the injury that he did wind up suffering. But if you're not interested in trading him, you shouldn't be playing him. If you are interested in trading him, you almost have to play him. Or you can take the patient approach and decide that it's more of an offseason decision. And that's where the the club has to make um, an internal judgment, first of all, on just how just how aggressively they're or or just just how intent they are on on Demko's future like is this a scenario where more so you're just open to it and you'll entertain offers and there's a scenario where unless the team blows you away you're you're going to keep him long term or is it legitimately a case where for whatever reason you do want to trade him and you're in a position where at some point over the next 12 months, you feel that you need to deal him. Though, like, first of all, you have to determine that and then think of and then sort of map out every team's goaltending situation, both ahead of the deadline, ahead of the offseason, figure out teams' cap situations, how much they have allocated in goal, and really think to yourself and, and try and calculate how many suitors you could have now versus in the summer, engage when there'd be maximum interest, maximum value in what you could get back for Demko, especially in light of how you think that he may come back and immediately perform, where if you if you think that it may take him some time to get back up to speed, if I was in their shoes, I'd be thinking, well, there's no rush to necessarily do this. I will rather I would rather just slow play him, let him get comfortable through the remainder of the season. And by the end of it, hopefully he's back looking like himself again. And then I can make this decision when I've got a lot of time in the offseason. But those are the sorts of conversations and questions that the Canucks are, are, are going to have to have internally. Yeah, because if just based on the hockey side of it, I am not moving him if it's not an absolute haul. And I mean, Bo Horvat, what they got for him, that shouldn't even come close to what the Canucks should be able to get for Thatcher Demko. Like given his contractual I don't think situation. A team, I don't think a team would give up. A lot more than uh, a lot more than what the Canucks got for Horvat. Goalies just aren't like then the Canucks. Then the Canucks shouldn't be giving him up. 
I mean, if it's, a, if it's a hockey decision, the Canucks simply shouldn't be giving him up if their timelines and goals are what they state, right? Like it needs to be a franchise altering move. And I know like what they got for what they wound up getting for Corey Schneider, who was a highly regarded goalie, was ultimately one first round draft pick, right? But so, so I get that side of it. But for me, he, it's just, it's such a well-positioned deal. It's about more than the player. Right. So, but, and I'm not speaking to any of the other variables around it, but if it was strictly a hockey decision, boy, like I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to part from that contract and that player if he's, if he's able to play the way he did a season ago. Yeah. Although even, I mean, this is where it gets money in the whole conversation of retool versus rebuild and what exactly is your timeline. But I'm only basing my conversation on their stated goals and timelines. For sure. And I, from that perspective, I can totally understand where you're coming from. I just don't understand how, like, they've got three years with them caught five million after this one. Yeah, it's a great deal. I, it's a great deal, but I, I don't know what you're going to win in that. You're never going to win win a Stanley yeah, Cup. What you're right, but that's not what they think. So if they think they can turn this around in two years, Thatcher Demko has to be a part of it. Like, what would you wind up paying? for a goaltender that you can function in the playoffs with if you had to go out and acquire him. Think of what the Canucks had to pay for Braden Holdby. And he's not near the quality goaltender. Like, you know, he was a reclamation player that was being paid $4 million. Yeah. He's not, he's not close to vintage Demko at five. It, like, like I said, from a hockey perspective, based on their stated goals, makes no sense at all. None. Yeah. So... So we'll see. And you are right, right? Like the blow away deal is not there for a goaltender generally. So we'll see, you know, but those goalies that get moved, you know, they're going into the last year of their deal. They're a distressed asset. Like there's, so, so I don't know if this is that, right? So if we're not positioning Demko as a distressed asset based on happiness to be here or injury, right? Like any of it, um, it, it doesn't make sense to me, but uh, Hey, listen, Many things have not made sense to me before. I'm just not as bright as some of some of the others out there making these decisions, including yourself, even though you're not making the decisions. No, uh, don't say that. <laughs> you, you always have good takes. But I will say, like at least for me anyway, I'm not looking... When I think about their decisions, I don't think... I don't restrict my thinking to what their intended like retool timeline is or whatever, right? Like Great example, Andre Kuzmenko. If you're under a retool premise, you look at the contract that he signed as a value deal, you'd say, okay, if you're looking to turn this around sooner rather than later, great, they re-signed him. Good. But I'm not going to do that because I I like I don't put too much stock into what their stated timeline is or what what whatever you, term they're labeling dude, on this project. Harm, you still- have to. You have to. Like I you know, I've had this argument with Drancher that like my conversation from now on. And my assessment so of any of their moves, su- I don't support it. I don't support it. No, I mean, but so you support the Kuzmenko decision because that that fits with the retool it, timeline. It, it fits with it fits with that. Now, do I think it was the right decision? Like, I'm not supporting it, but I'm only going to grade them. Like, I believe they should rebuild, like you do. Yeah. However, I'm not going to keep punching them in the face for not rebuilding. I'm going to gauge them based on what their stated goals are. You and I all have, we've all got our goals for what we want in our lives, in our careers, what we think our careers and our lives are going to look like 10 years from now, what our job situation is going to look like, what our financial situation is going to look like. So every one of our moves should be based on that. So for me, 
if they go out and trade Thatcher Demko and you applaud it because it's big picture thinking and they're thinking this far down the road and this is great. They're now acting like they're going to rebuild. And in 18 months, they're going to go sign a goaltender for $5 million. And then you're going to say, what the F? Because that's I'm, not going to fit. And that will be the follow-up move because they'll come back with, we can't function in this environment where it's just constant losing and we, our goaltending doesn't give us a chance. At least if we have goaltending, everybody else is not going to be playing as petrified. They at least will be able to feel like they can attack and skate and do some things. You, like My thing is if they trade him, the follow-up move will be to sign a guy that gets paid the same amount and isn't as good. They're going to sign the distressed asset. So that's my big concern because they'll trade him and you guys will say, yeah, this is a victory because it fits with a long-term rebuild and the next move won't. I mean, we'll see. You could be totally right. I just look at it as a good a good decision for the long-term future is a good decision for the long-term future. I'm not going to look at their stated timeline with the Kuzmenko extension, for example, and say and and sort of like alter my thinking just based off of their plan or or even in this case with uh with the Demko decision if they get a decent future oriented haul for him I'm not going to criticize them just because now all of a sudden I'm worried about how they're going to be competitive this season or next if they're thinking long term great I like I, I'm I'm not going to like whatever is in this franchise's best long term interests to field an actual to, to field and build an actually top end team at some point in the future that's what I'm going to base my evaluation and, and my opinions and takes of this team on. All right. Fair enough, which is good because then we can argue a lot over the course of the next couple of years here, <laughs> uh, as long as you'll have me. Hey, listen, if you're looking for other podcast options, and hey, before we go, like I'm really excited for Thursday's game. I think I said earlier they're playing the Islanders Wednesday. They're not. They're, they've got the Rangers on Wednesday, back-to-back with uh, the Islanders on Thursday. And I just I just want to see what that game looks like with Bo Horvat against his former team. Uh, should be some emotion there, probably a little easier because it's not going to be in Vancouver. But uh, nonetheless, that will probably be the finality to all of this. Uh, meanwhile... Craig Custance and Sean Gentili welcome Eric Duhachik, uh, Shayna Goldman, and Dom Lachusen on the um, Athletic Hockey Show USA to discuss the NHL 99 project, the Athletic NHL 99 countdown of the best 100 players in the modern NHL, in modern NHL history. Meanwhile, Mike Rupp, uh, Rupp joins Pizzo, Granger, and Russo on the round table on the Athletic Hockey Show on Wednesday. As for us, say follow the VanCast on your favorite podcast platform. Leave a rating and a review. You can get a new subscription to The Athletic for $2 per month for 12 months when you visit theathletic.com slash VanCast. We, of course, will return next week. Uh, early in the week, we'll take a look at the schedule. I, I am traveling back Monday from Super Bowl, so it's probably not going to be until Tuesday, but we'll get you the schedule as soon as we can. And uh, we'll also have some live rooms coming up. Uh, so uh, it's been we got a lot of live rooms in January. So February, we're going to see how many of those we have coming up. But uh, we try to get to at least two every month. But uh, it was a busy, busy January with live rooms, my friend. You were on a few. Hey, before we go, what's your Super Bowl pick? Oh, by the way, the Philadelphia Eagles are playing the Kansas City Chiefs. The game is being played in Glendale, Arizona. Thank, thank you for uh, thank you for uh, that information there. I, I will go for Philly in large part because... On my first road trip, I was actually in Philly, and I was just uh, sort of exploring the city on a night out. Ended up. You sound like my friends. wife picking teams based on her favorite animals and colors. 
Well, that's probably what it uh, what what it comes down to because I'm definitely not an NFL expert. Yeah. Anyway, so I she wears her really, pools, by the way. So there is merit to that. Yeah, I mean, I'm going Bruce Boudreaux vibes and, and feels, and and those yeah. those Philly friends I made asked me if I had an NFL team. I said no. They're like, all right, you got to promise us you're an Eagles fan now. So I uh, I got to stick to my uh, East Coast uh, allegiance there, especially well, uh, Jalen Hurts. Guy. See, I know you're... one guy, one guy, Jalen Hurts. Yeah, you know what position he plays? Quarterback. Oh, good. Okay, and th- and they were a botch's <laughs> favorite. They were botch's favorite team. So yeah, I was exactly. there when they beat the Patriots in the Super Bowl, and I picked up uh, green and and white confetti from the field to give to botch. Uh, mm-hmm. Along with a few other things, so um, you know, being being a botch guy, that would be the right pick. Uh, I I kind of hope the Chiefs win. And look, I my two favorite quarterbacks are playing in this game. I love the narratives and storylines around both guys, and um, I like I like seeing greatness be great. Um, I don't like seeing a quarterback that has got all this expectation and love and hype around him, and in ten years we're saying he only won one Super Bowl. Right, like I, I don't want that for Patrick Mahomes. He's too good for that. So I'm hoping he finds a way. However, other than the quarterback position, the Philadelphia Eagles are the better team. It is like in every other area. So I'm picking Philadelphia, even though I kind of want Kansas City to win. You know, when you're in this business, you can't have strong, strong, heavy allegiances. So it's not like I'm going to be cheering. But um, uh, both quarterbacks are are just just tremendous stories and people, and and I I hope they both do well in the game. So it should be a lot of fun. I'm sad Burrow didn't make it to the Super Bowl. Uh, oh, another quarterback. That's good. You two, two quarterbacks. Do you know who, who Burrow plays for? Yeah, Bengals. Nice. Transfer would be so proud. I literally, literally, the only reason I wanted him uh, wanted him to win too was um, just because he's um, he's got that swag. How cool uh, he, he is! He, do, he does have that. Joe Cool is all that. So yeah, clearly, I should never, ever, ever have anything to do with NFL analysis. I'll, I'll continue to leave that uh, to you. <laughs> All right, buddy, enjoy the game, find a good Super Bowl party, and we'll talk next week. Cheers, thanks.